Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Initially, I thought that you could give people bonuses for finishing work early and that would encourage them to work harder, but I think that tells them that you have extra money to give away. Best ever listeners, before we get into today's episode and the interview with our best ever guests, I want to mention Fund That Flip because Fund That Flip is an online lender that gives you fast, convenient access to really affordable money that you need for your flip project. So if you're doing residential flips, then the main thing I imagine that you're focused on uh, or the main two things are the deal and the money. Uh, so if you've got the deal pipeline, but you need access to cash and you want to build a reputation within a, uh, a group that will continue to invest their dollars into your deals, then go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Uh, the, the founder of Fund That Flip is Matt Rodak, and he's actually one of my very first guests on the show. It's episode number seven. Um, so if you have a chance, go check that out too. familiarize yourself with Matt and um, what he's all about. But when you're needing money and you want an online lender that provides fast, convenient access to affordable capital for your flipping projects, then Fund That Flip's the way to go. Their team has over 200 deals under their belt. And uh, you can actually, this is crazy, you can actually be approved immediately within 30 seconds once you put in your information. Uh, so go to fundnetflip.com forward slash best ever and get some money for your flipping projects. Best ever listeners, how's it going? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. My name is Joe Fairless, and today we've got a wonderful best ever guest. Previous best ever guest, as I'm sure you know, we've had Tom Wheelwright, who's Robert Kiyosaki's CPA. We've had Robert Kiyosaki on the show as well. Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank, Jay Papazan, the co-author of many of the best-selling books with Gary Keller, founder of the Keller Williams Group. Many multifamily investors, many fix and flippers, wholesalers. We've got all of your best ever guests on this show, and I'm very grateful to be speaking to today's best ever guest, and I know you're going to enjoy it, Alex Appleby. Hi, Alex. Hi, how are you? I am doing well, and thank you for being on the show. This is going to be a show that's focused on flipping and focused on the learnings that Alex has acquired from starting in the flipping game 
and what she's the positives and the money she's made and uh, some of the the challenges she has had to overcome and how she's overcome them. A little bit about her. She did her first flip in 2014 and she earned $19,000 on it. She's based in Santa Barbara, California, but she doesn't invest there and I'll let her talk about that. She's currently weeks away from closing on her third flip and non-real estate related, but ties in to what she's up to. She actually also has a full-time job working on a horse farm. So I told her before the show, she's the first ever horse farmer that we've had on the show. Recently, we had someone who draws blood for a living, or at least as their side gig. And I forget- Used to work in hospital as well, so I used to draw blood as well. <laughs> oh, well, now, now you're just showing off. <laughs> <laughs> well, in addition to drawing blood, working with horses, she's also flipping flipping houses. So, Alex, with that being said, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and how you got to this point? Sure. Well, growing up initially, my dad was actually a realtor and he has a brokerage um, and does buy and hold rentals. So real estate has always been in the periphery and something that I've been interested in wanting to get into. Um, But then I was really drawn to the house flipping. So in 2014, early 2014, I did get my realtor license in Arizona where I was living at the time. with the goal of flipping houses, and I spent years reading about house flipping and just picking up real estate magazines and looking what was for sale around me, and finally decided to take the plunge and get serious, and it still took me a few years to get going, but the initial step was getting my real estate license. Okay. Why flipping initially? Why not wholesaling or something else? I feel like wholesaling is a lot of work for not a lot of money. And if it's such a great deal, um, why don't you make the big money and do the flip yourself? And then also the flipping, I just felt was a way to really build wealth, not overnight, but a little bit more quickly. My ultimate goal is to get into multifamily investing, but to generate the money for that, I am doing flips. Okay. You were in Arizona. What part? Was it Phoenix? I'm just randomly guessing. Phoenix, Arizona. Okay. Um, I was actually living in a suburb called Waddell. My first flip property was central Phoenix. The second one I did was about 10 miles away from that in Scottsdale. Okay. Phoenix and Scottsdale were the first uh, one and two flips, respectively. How did you learn about the first flip and what can you tell us about it as far as the numbers go? As far as the numbers go, I purchased it for $104,000. It was a Fannie Mae home pass property that had actually been on the market quite a while. It was just sitting there. Um, they had had it listed at, um, I want to say, in the 140s originally, and they had just dropped the price to 120 And just because I would go all the time on the MLS and before that, just on things like Realtor.com and was looking at homes for sale in the area and I had actually had my eye on a couple other properties before I found this one. I saw that one online. I ran the numbers for it. Looked like a good deal. Went out to take a look at it and thought it was a little bit still overpriced in the 120s. It was in pretty poor condition, but I also saw opportunity because it was 1,500 square feet, but only two bedroom, one bathroom. And that's that's a lot of square footage just to have two bedrooms and one bathroom. Um, so sort of priced out the numbers, and I already had numbers from other properties that I'd run numbers on as far as the construction costs. So I had a pretty good idea of what I would be spending and thought there was a lot of 
room to add a lot of value based on what three-bedroom, two-bathroom homes were selling for in the area. So purchased it for 104000 sold it for 210000 Let's see, it, it took me about six months. What, what were those numbers? Will you say that again? 104000 was purchase price and 210000 was my sales price. And how much you put into it? I put in 63000 I want to say. Okay. I, I should have pulled up all the numbers for you initially. No, that's fine. I didn't tell you I was going to quiz you on the exact numbers, but just generally we got 100 and you're all in at 167000 The sales price was 210000 so sixty seven seventy, so about forty thousand dollars there. And you said you made about nineteen k on it. So where did the like the twenty ish thousand go? The twenty ish thousand went to paying the other realtor when I sold it. I did list it myself, so I did you know save three percent there. But you still need to pay three percent to the other realtor when you sell it. Um, I agreed to pay another three percent. I want to say in closing costs, the buyers were FHA buyers. And they needed assistance with closing costs. And I think, you know, there's a lot of advertisements starting up again for people to buy properties through government programs with very low down payments and things like that. And it seems that you really end up paying for their down payment by paying their closing costs. Mm -hmm. And then there was a few extra things that I did for them during the sale as far as you know, putting in a new fridge. I probably wouldn't do that again in retrospect, but um, this was my first deal and I really wanted it to sell and have that success. So I gave a little bit with the closing process, I guess you could Yeah, and completely agree with you on, you probably wouldn't do it if you could do it over again, but at the same time, I mean, on your first deal, you just want to make sure the cash flow is positive and you are complete, you're successfully completing it. But what, what are some of the things that you gave to them as part of a concession? You said you, you put in a refrigerator? I actually replaced the refrigerator that I had in there and the washer and dryer I had in there because, you know, occasionally I get myself into a little bit of trouble by being a little bit too cheap about things. And I had found a refrigerator at, you know, a secondhand store, and I thought it was good enough, especially for a starter home property, but they really wanted something a little bit nicer. I mean, it was stainless steel, but it had a couple scratch and dents here and there, and I've really learned that when you've renovated this property beautifully and everything looks great, anywhere that you cut corners like that, it's going to be 20 times as noticeable as initially, you know, because... You've got beautiful granite countertops, brand new kitchen cabinets, and then a stainless steel fridge with a scratch at the bottom. Mm -hmm. People are going to complain about that. So, you know, that ended up costing me money because it was something for them to complain about in the sale, and buyers are always going to try and find something to nitpick you on. And, you know, being new to this, I, you know, was very ready to sell it and sort of gave in a little more than I should. But, you know, I really shouldn't have been cheap in the first place and put it in a fridge like that. I should have just gotten a nicer product to begin with. So next time you'll just renovate it so that there's scratch and dents all over the house. That way the scratch and dent <laughs> appliance won't stand out, right? Yes, that sounds like a wonderful strategy. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, my next flip, I bought a very nice fridge. It was still a used fridge, but you couldn't tell. And just spent a couple hundred dollars extra, and it ended up saving me, and they had no problem with the fridge when I sold it. What were the numbers on the second deal? 
deal was not as successful, and I can talk about why. That's the one in Flagstaff? No, this was uh, Scottsdale. Scottsdale, sorry, Scottsdale. And this was a really good case of me getting in my own way again. And, you know, I'm new at this, so I look at all of these sort of as like a college education. And if I get out of it with my money, great. My ultimate goal is to make a lot of money, but um, you really have to do it and have the experience because, you know, I read about all of this for years and, you know, I thought I was so prepared going in and I'm not going to make mistakes, but you don't know what you don't know until you do it. So anyways, this flip, we bought it for 320000 which was an okay purchase price, and I sold it for 437 And again, I paid people's closing costs. I sort of put myself in the situation where I needed to get out of it really quickly, which is, you know, just a huge rule. You don't want to do that in your flips and put yourself in a weak bargaining position, I guess you could say. Then a couple of other factors occurred. It seems like the area in Scottsdale that this property was went from having a very low inventory to an extremely high inventory when I put it on the market. For example, in this subdivision, there was 36 properties. And in the past year and a half, only two properties, with the exception of mine, had come up for sale and sold. I mean, which for Phoenix is very few. Well, the month that I put it on the market, just in that little subdivision, there was like four or five other houses that all of a sudden came on the market as well. Wow. Yeah. They just flooded the market at the same time. How long did it take you to flip the property? That one took me, let's see, probably like eight months which was unfortunate. The renovation really only took me three months. I mean, and then that obviously becomes a huge problem and essentially ate up my profit. And the thing that saved me is that I purchased it at the correct price. If you go into the flip and you buy correctly, it can make up for a lot of your own mistakes that you make along the way. If you pay too much in the beginning, I mean, you're fighting a losing battle, I think. If I had gone into this property and paid, you know, 350000 or something, it would have been a disaster. I would have lost money. So yeah. in a way, I think your numbers are your numbers. You can't really fudge them to make them work. They're black and white. The really difficult part of flipping houses, I think, is the management of people. And that goes from not only managing your subcontractors, but also managing yourself because you have to kind of be strict with yourself and go, no, I'm not going to try and make this deal work or I'm not going to fall in love with this property. You sort of have to distance yourself from it and then also manage the other realtors from things like I mentioned, not giving in on closing costs and things like that. That's really the harder part of flipping, I think. Let's dive into some of these points that you made uh, because you made some really interesting ones and, and you've mentioned some interesting things that piqued my curiosity but before I get into those, how much did you put into this Scottsdale property? You said you bought it for three hundred and twenty, you sold it for four hundred and thirty-seven. So quick math, one hundred and seventeen thousand dollars spread. How much did you put into it? I put in seventy-four thousand. Let's see, uh, seventy-four thousand and some change. There was my renovations cost. I paid the other realtor on the sales end. I think he made just over 13000 I also, again, <laughs> paid 7000 in closing costs. So that's, there's me getting in my own way again. Also, another mistake that I made here was because I got desperate to sell it, 
I started dropping my price, and it put me in a really weak negotiating position because I went from having it listed at 460, which was actually reasonable based on my comp and also based on the other properties that ended up for sale in, in the neighborhood. For example, the property behind me was on the market for 495 and didn't even have a garage and it was on the busiest part of the street and things like that. And this is not to say to base your comps off of what's for sale. You need to base your comps off of things that have actually closed. But there was another property in the air, in the subdivision that had actually closed for 465. And so I was reasonable asking for 460, but I got so desperate to sell it that I just kept slashing the price. And then I think people pick up on that weakness. Yep. And I actually had an offer this first month on market. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, I know. This is where I kick myself away. The offer was for four thirty seven nine and <laughs> no closing costs. <laughs> and a very quick close with an extremely well-qualified buyer. And I was just like, oh, no, that's too low. I'm going to save it because... I think I'm justified at a higher price or I'll come down to 450 but I'm not going to 437 so quickly on the market thinking, oh, I'll have tons of offers. And then all of a sudden, you know, like I said, there was a ton of houses for sale on the same street. What month were you in? This was March. Say March. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> March is when all the houses go on the market. I know. Yeah, Mar- March and April. That's whenever all the activities happening. I should have known that. I should have just paid attention to this and taken that good offer. And I think sometimes it's better just to get out of the property if you have a decent offer because you really don't know if you're going to get another offer in a week or two. You can't assume that. And I was a little bit cocky. That's what had happened on my first property was that I got multiple offers within the first month and, you know, got what I wanted for it. So, you know, have to be humble and learn my lesson. And then it was really stupid of me to drop the price to 437 with the justification of, oh, I got that offer. And right. I knew it was a bad idea when I did it, but I just got in my own way, kept with it. Occasionally I get on a track and it's hard to get me off that track. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you, so you still made about, what, 20000 or so? No, no. after okay. everything was said and done, um, oh, because I, you know, put money in my, some of my own personal money and not borrowed money into the property as well. So I got that back out. So I think after everything was said and done, we're like 15, and then I gave most of it over to my lender and, you know, came out basically as a break even. Okay. <laughs> so, and how did you get the money to purchase it? I mean, you initially paid $320,000 for it. Plus, you had seventy four k in renovations, so you're talking. I mean, you're creeping in on half a million dollars worth of money there. How'd you get? Where'd you get that from? I am, and both of my splits have been through private money lending through a family member. Um, it's actually my dad, so I'm very grateful. And I think people are initially very quick to write that off as, "Oh, your dad's just giving you money, this and that." It's not really the case because I am still paying interest on it. Um, and he lends out to other people in this business, so he gives me very similar terms. Okay. What, the, what, are, the, what are the terms? These properties were 6%. The one, I have one in escrow right now that's actually significantly higher amount of money, but um, we're going to be at 9%. So that's 
how he finances other people, which is quite generous, but I think he sort of does business as if everybody is happy with the deal and gets something out of it, you're going to end up doing more business than making a large chunk of money one time and having, you know, somebody leave a little bit unhappy or feeling taken advantage of, if that makes sense. I've got a a guess, and my guess is since you said the one that you're working on significantly higher amount, my guess is the one you're working on is in California and not in Arizona, but I'm just totally guessing. Is that the case? You're completely correct, and it is in Santa Barbara, which I don't know if you've ever checked out real estate prices here, but it's a little bit outrageous. <laughs> yep. So what what are the numbers on this one that you got in escrow? Okay. Are you ready? Because this is a little crazy. Even to I'm me. sitting and- down. I'm ready. Okay, sit down, and this is a starter home, and the condition of this home is not livable, and it is a $700,000 property. We are paying $25,000 to the person who essentially wholesaled the property, but he is not a wholesaler. He's a local flipper who has really moved on from flipping to much bigger development projects. But he still has this pipeline of deals coming in, and he knew I was looking and you know, figured he'd throw something my way. So, because my family's helped him out in the past, so I'm very grateful, and he's making $25,000 right off the bat, which is great for him. Sales price, we're looking at $8.99, and this is really a quick job. We're, you know, fixing the roof, fixing the windows, putting in new kitchen cabinets, paint, doors, baseboards, but not changing layout or anything nearly as expensive as my first project, so looking to sell it for like $8.99. That's the goal. We're in escrow. We should close this week or early next week. We will see. And how much do you anticipate the fixing roof, windows, paint, doors, baseboards, stuff to total up to? Let's see. Conservatively, I want to say that we're going to spend, I would love to be able to spend $40,000 on property. I don't think that's realistic. So let's just say it's going to be closer to sixty because it always goes over unanticipated expenses. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you some hard numbers now because I've already started doing bids to replace all of the windows in the property as well as um, the large exterior sliding outside door is going to cost me six grand, but labor and materials. So that's the bigger one. My roof is going to cost me five. We have a great guy who does it for almost nothing. And he actually does good work because I had him do this on another property in Santa Barbara that was not a flip, it's just a personal rental property of my dad's that got trashed by a tenant. So... And it also needed the roof, so we kind of tested him out. Okay, with all of this activity, I mean, you, you've got a set. You got in escrow for seven hundred. You think it's going to cost uh, about sixty, so that's seven sixty. Thinking you're going to sell it for nine hundred, so that's about one hundred and forty thousand dollars spread. How much do you? What is your goal of money that is going to go into your pocket by end of this? And how long do you think it will take from start to finish? I really want to do this one quickly and. It's- really not that expensive, especially in comparison to my first project. Um, I think renovations should take about six weeks. And money into my pocket, I mean, honestly, at this point, I would be happy to make 50000 There's a huge spread on that, but I almost don't want to jinx myself by assuming I'm going to make this large chunk of money. Because what happened on my Scottsdale project, I was very confident that I was going to make 50000 and look, I broke even. So... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Let's do the math here, though. Let me pull out my calculator. Conservatively, I'm thinking I'm going to make eighty-four thousand after okay. realtor fees. Because keep in mind, six. Well, Santa Barbara realtors, because houses are so expensive, the standard practice out here is five percent. I'm going to have to pay five percent 
when I sell this property, which ends up to be quite a bit, then I'm spending 9% on my financing costs. Then we have, you know, hidden renovation costs because you just never know until you open things up. Mm-hmm. And I used to hate when people would say that. I'd say, that's not an excuse. You should not know what your property is going to cost to renovate. That just seems lazy to me. And then I actually did a flip. <laughs> and, you know learned that that's just not the case. You always have just a bunch of little things that always run over. I felt like every time I'd go to Home Depot, which was also mismanagement on my part, you should not be running to the store to pick up material for your subs all the time. It's just a terrible idea. But I felt like every trip I took cost me $200, even if it's just to go get doorknobs. And $200 constantly, it adds up if you're doing that every day. (laughs) Yep, yep. Well, certainly you have learned a lot. And um, so I'm excited to hear what is your best real estate investing advice ever? My best real estate investing advice ever, manage your subcontractors properly because that is the fastest way that you are going to destroy your deal. You will just watch your profits evaporate if you don't manage the people working on your project in a competent way. (laughs) Okay, and what are some tips on how to manage your subcontractors that you've picked up? Tips on managing my subcontractors. One, I go with subcontractors. I do not get a general contractor because you are going to be going to the property to manage your general contractor, so why are you paying him to bring in other people? You can do that yourself if you're going to be there anyways. First tip is if they do not show up to give you a bid or they show up ridiculously late without any notification, they do not get another chance. I will not hire them. I will not have them come out to do a bid again. It just shows that they're unreliable. I don't care that their car broke down. I don't care if they were working on another project. (laughs) Really not my problem. This is also another thing that I've learned. That might sound harsh, but you're not, you know, hiring these people to make friends with them. It really doesn't matter whether they like you or not. I really thought that I could be like this kind boss and if I did nice things for them, they would work harder for me, especially thinking that there's going to be another project down the line because I plan to keep doing this. And that's just not how it works. I, you know, and this is generalizing, but in my experience now having dealt with a lot of subcontractors, especially being younger, I'm in my 20s, I'm a woman, they kind of see it as a target that they're going to make a lot of money off of me and instead of looking at the long-term picture of, you know, establishing a good relationship. So I really had to learn to be really strict. And it doesn't matter if they don't like me, I will fire them. If you think that you're, you maybe should fire them, you should probably should have fired them a week ago. But um, this is also another important thing is you need your paperwork to be really tight and to have a lot of paperwork to the point that it almost scares them right off the bat. And what's the paperwork? Is just contracts with them? Contracts with them. And this goes beyond having just a scope of work and independent contractor form. That's how I started out is I would have an independent contractor form and a scope of work. And I thought that that's all you needed and that would protect you and your job and get the work done on time. It's not really the case. For example, I had a sub who we we're doing stucco on the outside of the property. So we walked around, we looked at everything, we pointed out all of the holes and got a bid for doing the stucco on the property. And the bid was $1,100. Great, stuccoing the entire house, labor, supposedly materials, and patching all of the holes. And so just on the independent 
excuse me, on the scope of work, we had stucco exterior of the house, $1,100. You know, we both signed it. That was it. And it sort of started, they, it's like he would test me, and this is a common thing I've noticed it, to see if they could take advantage. So I come to the property one day, and he's like, oh, all of these holes also need to be patched. That's going to be an extra $400. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, in the scope of work, we had written, you know, we talked about this before, and we put that, you know, stucco exterior of house on the scope of work mm-hmm. for $1,100, and he signed it. And I was like, well, maybe this was an honest miscommunication. And I said, okay, no problem, you know, but that's going to include everything, right? Like, oh, yes, yes, that includes everything. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And so as soon as I did that, it was just downhill from there because the next day I come and it's like, oh, this is going to be another $300 because of this hole over here. <laughs> I was like, I just paid you an extra, whatever it was, $400 to cover all of the patchwork and that's not included. But um, so my scope of work is extremely detailed, and I pulled out the scope of work that was less detailed with this guy, and I was like, "Look, we had it written down here, and he's like, I didn't sign that." It's like, "Yes, you did. I can't believe you would just look at me and lie about that. I have your signature, and I pull it out and show it to him." He's like, "Well, I didn't understand what it was, but okay." So now I have them sign a piece of paper saying that they understand all of the forms that they are <laughs> signing. I oh my them- gosh. Oh, it's extensive. It's about six pages, and we sit there and we read through it before I hire them. But this is actually a good test because if they will not sign this paperwork, then they don't get the job. And it kind of shows me that they were, you know, maybe not the most honest person or something like that because it protects them and it protects me so that they don't feel that I've added extra work in. You know, I feel that everything I wanted done is done. Where I really got this from was before, you know, getting into real estate, before working at the horse barn that I'm working at, I was a respiratory therapist in the hospital. And we document everything. And if it is not written on paper, it did not happen. That's how they train you. I mean, you sign forms saying that you understand the forms you're signing. And I thought, you know, I'm going to do what the hospitals do. They're going to tell me that they understand everything. I'm going to get all their contact information. They're going to initial every single page. Like I said, they write out the scope of work themselves by hand in this kind of boilerplate form that I made so that they can't tell me that they didn't agree to that. You know, we're all on the same page. As soon as they sign everything, I take it home, make copies, and I give it to them. And, you know, it's really helped because it shows them that you were very serious right off the bat. So, and that's in addition to an independent contractor form that says that they're not an employee and, you know, I'm not liable for a lot of stuff. (laughs) Would you be able to share a a sample of what you're talking about as far as the form that tells them they understand what they're signing? Yes, I will send that over. I'm going to, you know, give a disclosure, take it to your attorney and review it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I'll send that over, and then also my scope of work. In addition to that, we kind of sign a form saying my expectations for the job site because I had a lot of problems on my first flip. Like I said, it's about learning to manage people. Of I would come to a job site that was an absolute mess. Nails everywhere. They would leave trash everywhere, even little things like cigarette butts and Coke cans from the people that were working there, and it just looked terrible. And then they would try and charge me to clean up their own mess. That's ridiculous. So I have expectations that every day they clean up the job site. It's swept up. Garbage is thrown away. If they do not finish the work on time with our agreed timeline, 
which, you know, I'm very generous. I put four days after X date, which is the date that they tell me that the work will be completed, after four days, unless caused by problems of me, you know, misscheduling subcontractors or something like that, we start to deduct from their paycheck, essentially. Not paycheck, but their cost. Um, Initially, I thought that you could give people bonuses for finishing work early, and that would encourage them to work harder. But I think that tells them that you have extra money to give away. (laughs) So suddenly things take longer, and things that weren't a problem initially, they tell you you have to redo. So it works much better just to say, I'm not going to pay you. I'm going to deduct $200 from the total for every four days over the deadline. Also, I deduct for a messy job site. They get one warning. And if I come to the property and it's such a mess again that I need to talk to them about it, that's like $25 off. Yeah, it'd be fascinating. I'd be really interested to see those forms. And thank you. It's signed. So they know this going in. And if this doesn't work for them, that's fine. And I have only one time had to get on somebody about that. And it was basically just warning saying, hey, you signed this contract that the job site is supposed to be left in this condition, and it's not. So if I have to talk to you again, I'm going to deduct it. And that was really difficult because I'm actually a very passive, quiet person, and I'm here in my 20s, like, essentially lecturing this person in his 40s about this. And it was hard, but you just have to get over it and look at it that this is a business, and there's also 30 people to take their place if you need to fire them. So, Yeah, a note to the best ever listeners, in the show notes page, you'll be able to download the form or forms that Alex so graciously shares with us. So if you go to um, you know my website, joefairless.com, or just shoot, just look at, just Google my name, Joe Fairless and Alex Appleby, and this the show link or the show page will come up and then the link to download it will be in the show notes. So uh, thanks a lot for, for sharing that with us, Alex. Oh, no problem. You know, another real important thing, and I'm sorry if I'm going too long but I really enjoy talking about real estate. (laughs) But managing your subs, only give a little bit of work out at a time, and that's going to prevent you from having a disaster on your hand where you've got 30 things started that you've sort of paid money out for. That was a problem on my first project. I ended up having to pay people to redo work that I'd already paid to have done because everybody that walks through your project is going to tell you how they can do the entire job for you for cheaper and this and that. I used to buy into that, and I'd get say, okay, great, well, you can do this, 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 and that. I don't do that anymore. I even occasionally have my painters bid out separately painting the walls and painting the baseboards, <laughs> just to the point that they know that I will bring somebody else in, and it also makes it easier if their work becomes poor or unacceptable to you. You've already got other people that you can bring in. It's not going to delay your job for that long. Good tips, all good tips. And I've been taking notes, and we'll summarize them at the very end. So thanks again for uh, giving some very practical real-life examples and and advice. You ready for the best-ever lightning round? I guess so. All right. Well, I guess we'll do it then. First, a quick (laughs) word from our best-ever partners. If you need money for your flipping project, then go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best-ever. You'll know within 30 seconds if you're approved or not to get money for your residential flip. Go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best-ever. Best ever book you've read? Jay Scott's Guide to Flipping Houses and Estimating Rehab Costs. Jay Scott's the man. You can uh, listen to his episode. It's actually the second most popular episode that I've had on the show, and I've done over 400 interviews. 
That episode is 217. It's titled, You Only Have One Chance to Make a Good Flippin' Impression. So go check that out if you haven't already, episode 217. Best ever personal growth experience and what'd you learn from it? Finishing this, that Earl Drive flip and then also all the mistakes that I made on my second flip. It just really taught me a lot of good lessons that I'm learning from. And normally I would follow up with what specific lessons, but you've outlined a lot of them already and we'll summarize that at the very end. Best <laughs> ever project you're most excited about right now? My most excited project is the Santa Barbara property that we're hopefully closing on this week because I think it will be a good success that I can utilize all the failed or failures, I guess I should say, from my other projects and make sure that those don't happen again. What's the biggest mistake you've made in real estate so far? I thought it was a really good idea to just buy new doors for the kitchen in my Scottsdale rehab, and that was a huge mistake, and I probably could have spent $1,000 more and put in an entire new kitchen, and it did not look as good as it should have. What's the best ever way you like to give back? Long term, I would really like to get involved in some sort of you know animal shelter charities. That's, that's my long-term goal. Unfortunately, I haven't gotten a chance to do much of that yet. And what's the best ever place for the best ever listeners to reach you? You can get a hold of me at my email address, applezrealestate at gmail.com. Alex, thank you for being on the show and sharing your advice with best ever listeners and giving very specific examples that are backed up by personal experience. That's the best type of advice is whenever it's very specific and applicable to what the best ever listeners are working on. So uh, for the in this case, it's people who are focused on flipping. But then also, you know, I, I don't flip homes, but I do uh, repositionings and value add for apartment communities. And your tips on managing people in a competent way, you know, were, were very, very relevant to myself. Um, so I imagine it's, it's to other listeners as well who are doing this type of stuff. And I'm going to quickly summarize a lot of the stuff that you mentioned. One is go with subcontractors, not a general contractor, because there's an extra layer. You're going to be at the site anyway, or you should be, if you're doing it for, if you're overseeing it personally, perhaps if you've got a, a, a company that you're doing multiple jobs on, then perhaps you're not there personally. And that's a, that's a different level of, of business scale. But if you're doing it yourself, then go subcontractors, not a general. If they show up late without notification, then they're booted. That means they have no they have no chance of redeeming themselves. Sorry, not going to work with you. And that's showing up late whenever during the bidding process. Then they're not going to be part of your team. You're not hiring them to make friends with them. You are hiring them to do a job. You initially saw the kind of the the play it nice role not work as effectively as what you thought it would. So um, you took a different approach and, and now it's, it's working. Don't do bonuses. Suddenly things take longer. Very interesting insight there. They think you have more money. Very, very interesting. Whether, whether that everybody comes across that or not is I'm sure because I'm, I'm sure other listeners who do flip homes or do other projects are like, well, incentives work for me. Well, they do for you, but for Alex, this is what she's found. And I think that's very interesting and whatever works for you works. The starter home property, $700,000 that you're buying in Santa Barbara, sales price, eight ninety nine. dollars looking to make about $84,000. Good luck with that. And thank you for sharing the Scottsdale example where you basically broke even and, and had a, a learning experience. 
that uh, didn't cost you money, so that's good. And now you're able to apply that to uh, future deals. And then you made money on your first flip, so congrats on that 19K, and you, you walked us through the very specific numbers there. So wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for being on the show, and we'll talk to you soon. No problem. Thank you. 